Hello, this is Joseph Carlson, and this is episode 150 of Gaming with Grief, and I'm calling this episode From Software and Death Part 2. Uh, but I want to remind you guys, uh, before we get to the episode, that this podcast hits my website, www.gamingwithgrief.com, Monday morning at 7 a.m. Please go there, subscribe to the podcast, let me know what I can do to improve, leave a comment, general stuff like that. Or you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes, the Google Play Store, or Spotify. It's just the Gaming Grief Podcast with Joseph Carlson. Or you can write to me uh, an actual email at gwgpodfellows at gmail.com. Do the same thing there. Write me an email. Let me know what you think of the show. Leave me a comment. Stuff like that. I'd really appreciate it. Or you can find me on Twitter at JustLittleJoe. Um, yeah. And I just want to say, um, yeah, this is episode 150. So I've been doing it a while. It's pretty crazy that I got to 150. I just checked uh, SoundCloud. It sounds like more and more people are listening. Uh, more than I'm used to. Uh, more than seven. I'll just say that. Um, but yeah, this is just a continuation of last week's episode uh, 149 of From Software and Death Part 1. In this episode, I'm going to be going over uh, From Software's three newer games, uh, starting with Bloodborne that came out in 2015, then going to Dark Souls 3, and uh, then to Sekiro. So let's first start off with uh, Bloodborne, which I don't have a cool audio intro because it is literally a cutscene in the game that starts out, and it's incredibly... Not incredibly, but it is abstract if you haven't played the game. Sort of uh, the the thing with the Souls games, which was great, was there was this great kind of narration voiceover where you could, you know, like they basically lay out. Even though it's cryptic, they kind of laid out a little bit of the game. And in this, the uh, Bloodborne, they do not do that. Um, but uh, I'll basically just tell you a little bit logistically about Bloodborne. It came out in uh, twenty fifteen. Um, in, uh, I got it written down here, on um, March uh, 24th in North America, and then like the 25th, 26th, and 27th in Japan, uh, the PAL regions, and um, there was one other region there that I'm forgetting, but basically every, like, it was almost a World War release where it hit every day in different regions. Uh, now, a quick side note, I have done an episode on Bloodborne before, um, but unfortunately, I think this year, with the way I'm labeling episodes, I wanted to be more clear because I tried to be clever a long time ago, and I would name goofy names for episodes, but when I would do a review or something, I'd try to write that down. But I think when I did Bloodborne, it was more of an off-the-cuff episode, so what's happened is I can't find the old episode that I talked about Bloodborne with because I named it something so goofy I could not go back and find it. It isn't called Bloodborne. It isn't called whatever... I tried to use blood in the title, but I did that with a few episodes, so it's really unclear. So I would just say I've spent a lot more time with Bloodborne, and I actually streamed it leading up to me discussing the game. And again, uh, like the thesis in the part one of this, the one that happened last week of this episode, is the idea that death mechanically and lore-wise fit in very closely to From Software's games, especially their new games, Bloodborne, Dark Souls 3, and Sekiro. And I'll go over those each in part. So part one, we're talking about Bloodborne. I already went over the logistics, but what I'll say is, after having spent time streaming the game, uh, I checked my clock. I'm over 96 hours playing Bloodborne. I have not beat it. In fact, I streamed one of the major bosses, German, in the end. Um, and I could not beat him. I had 
Uh, I had a stash of blood vials. I had a stash of quicksilver bullets. He whooped me over and over again. And from what I hear from looking into the game and the lore videos I've watched that after you beat him, he is almost like a mini boss. There's another boss after this if you choose to fight German. So what I'm going to say right now is there's going to be a massive spoiler warning for Bloodborne. Uh, and I'm going to be very surface level, but I am going to spoil key sections of the game. Because, again, talking about death mechanically and lore-wise, I can't get into that without getting into, well, the lore of the game. So I've watched Vati video, which is a very good YouTuber that breaks down a lot of these lore things. I've seen, I've read a lot of Reddit posts over the years because i played Bloodborne. A little bit after it came out, and I, like many players, bounced off, uh, didn't like it, thought it was too difficult, didn't realize what the game was trying to show me or teach me or whatever, that I thought it was just another From Software game where it was difficult and I would never get past the beginning section. But as I read the lore from different sources, not just about the video, um, in fact, there was a little bit of online controversy, I remember, because, you know, people doing lore videos, you're reading or watching or playing from the same text. Everybody's playing Bloodborne if you're trying to interpret Bloodborne. And people are kind of getting the same things out of the game, right? So there was a little bit of controversy when people said that uh, Vati Video ripped off other YouTube creators. I remember seeing video essays about this. But Vati Video was very honest and he said, listen, we're all pulling from the same source. So my videos are a certain way. These other people that have done videos kind of edit theirs and have their own style and voice. But we're all kind of pulling from the same source text, as it were. So of course we're going to come to the same conclusions maybe go over the same lore. Now, over the years, Vati's done a very good job with all the From Software games, uh, Bloodborne especially. So I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes versions of Bloodborne. But again, if you haven't played the game or don't want to play, this is spoilers. Quickly, this game follows along the same tradition of other From Software games. You get a resource. In this game, it's Blood Echoes. So if you acquire those and then die... The blood stain where you died is a spot to retrieve your blood echoes. And you use this like currency like you do in the other games where you spend uh, blood echoes to either get items or, um, you know, upgrade your level, become stronger, faster, have more stamina, things like that. Your bullets do more damage. Anyway, all that kind of stuff is like standard from software stuff. Again, this is mechanically how it turns in. But what makes Bloodborne so unique is it is it is a third-person action game set in kind of a dystopian, cosmic horror-themed Victorian London. And the reason why there is cosmic horror there, which again, this is a very simple Cliff Notes versions, and I've seen this from several sources. Vati Video is one of them, but there are several online that I've read. The idea in Bloodborne was that there's a town called Yarnum. And what happened was some scholars back in the day uh, went to these underground tombs underneath Yarnum and found someone called the, the Temerians, which I hope I'm saying that right. But these Temerians were like these ancient, ancient um, humans. And what happened was they found blood from the ancient one, which in cosmic horror is like kind of a cosmic being from space. Again, this is a very... Uh, there's probably people already writing into the comments I've screwed this up. But basically, these Numerians figured out that by using this ancient blood, uh, they would become healed. And um, it was um, helping ailments. Now, some of the stuff I may have gone over in this other episode that I can't find, so I apologize. But since I'm going over from software, I'm going over this again. In fact, I imagine people weren't with me in episode 20. So here we go. So what happens is there's a school set up to... Um, study the blood. Bergenworth. 
And Bergenworth has two people, uh, Willem and Lawrence. Willem is the old man who wants to be cautious and believes that, hey, we should really be careful when we're dealing with this ancient blood that we don't know what it does. Lawrence is young, brash, goes totally all in on we need to use the blood. It is healing people of ailments. Uh, and and I want to I want to um, just I'm I'm all in on the blood. Let's use it for everything. You know, let's bathe in it. So this is a schism. So there in Bergamworth there is uh, people that uh, are with Willem that say we should really watch this, and people that are with Lawrence that say I don't we 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 um um we, we, let's use all of it. Let's use all the blood. What happens is you are kind of this foreigner. Who comes to Yarnum? It's very vague in the beginning, even more for from software games. It's vague, but basically, you come to town see- seeking a um, a cure for an unknown ailment, maybe from the town you're in or whatever. And uh, you take a sample. Uh, German, who watches over kind of the hunt, uh, kind of gives you a blood sample. Says you're going to have to hunt these monsters if you want some of this pale blood this special blood that um, we have that may cure what you have. So this game is kind of presented as a, as I've heard several people call it, just a, a monster hunt. You go through, people in town are, uh, they look crazy, they're diseased, uh, the dogs are like undead, half their skin's missing. The town is crazed. You run into almost Frankenstein monsters, there's werewolves you fight. You also run into these bosses like the Cleric Beast, which is like this kind of... Um, you know, huge creature with claws. It's like the first boss in the game. Um, anyway, so th- the idea is that if you kill these monsters, you're going to get this pale blood. From what I understand, that's like the the overarching German tells you before you get a blood transfusion, hey, kill these monsters, you'll get the pale blood. That's the deal. You wake up, you have no weapons, uh, you wake up in a clinic, and you basically fight your game, uh, your way through the game. But what you find out as you... F- you're uh, killing monsters and getting weird items and blood echoes and all this, is things aren't right in the Arnhem. And what you you come to realize is that the people in town have been infected with this uh, Numerian blood and have gone insane. And you, through fighting different enemies and finding secret passages and going through, um, you know, finding secrets basically in the game, you find out that the ancient old ones are literally like under Yarnum, like controlling everybody in a weird way. Uh, you find Bergenworth. Willem is um, uh, old. He tells you to watch it and then directs you to this lake that these schools located on and you kill this massive spider named Rom the Vacuous Spider. He has tons of eyes with him. You have to kill him and his kin. There's all these little baby spiders. If you have arachnophobia, don't play the game. You kill them, and then what happens is the moon changes uh, that you see in the sky, and you start to see more and more things in town. Creatures look more grotesque than you saw before. Certain passages open up, if I remember right. Again, this is 96 hours of me looking back in my history playing the game. But you realize that the whole town is like, this is a cosmic horror. These ancient cosmic old ones are basically just messing with Yarnum and also you find out that since ancient cosmic old one is unique they want to breed but it is difficult to breed so they're it's like this weird experiment that there it seems like in Yarnum but everybody's just going insane uh, from what I can tell so at the end of the game you have three choices 
You go to this place called The Hunter's Dream, which German, who gave you the contract, is there watching over The Hunter's Dream. It's somewhere where hunters can go. They can uh, make sure that everything is... uh, It's basically like a respite. So he basically tells you there's three endings. Uh, You can either... um, You confront him, uh, and he says, listen, this didn't go the way it was supposed to go. If you submit, uh, you'll leave The Hunter's Dream... You won't remember any of this, and everything will be fine. You'll live to see the sunrise. So if you do that, there's a cutscene where he cuts your head off. You wake up in Yarnum. You are, uh, you know, it looks like you have a headache. It's a silent scene. Your protagonist doesn't talk. Um, and it's like you wake up to another day, but there's a lot of talk online of like, hey, the town's still messed up. The hunt's still going on. You're kind of like just in the middle of town dealing with this hunt, so that's not a good ending. The second ending is... You refuse German's offer and say, no, man, I'm done. We're done here. You kill German. The moon presence, which is an ancient great one, comes down and kills you, or not even kills you, just makes you a servant of the great old one. And since you killed German, you have to take German's place. You sit in a wheelchair like he did in the beginning of the game, and you watch over the hunter's dream for other hunters to come and use it as a respite between hunts. And so uh, the doll that was there that I didn't mention, there is a, a woman that is uh, basically levels you up and gives you a little advice. She seems very sad. I really like the voice actress. I didn't uh, get her name, so I apologize for that. But um, she's with you, and you basically are like in this weird purgatory where you get to just hang out and uh, be in the hunter's dream. The third ending is probably the most unique. So through the course of the game, you find uh, parts of an umbilical cord, um, which basically are remnants of the ancient old ones that they have left behind uh, somehow or some forth. So what happens is if you consume three parts of an umbilical cord, you have the ability, if you ingest them, when you refuse German's offer and the moon beast comes down and tries to devour you to take German's spot, it realizes you are already kind of ascending and becoming an old one and it tries to kill you. So I don't know if there's a true ending in the game, but this is obviously the most difficult because after you kill German, whatever you have left, the moon presence comes down and then tries to kill you. Um, if you survive the encounter and kill the moon presence, the game cuts away to an ending cutscene where you look like something, like a massive slug. You're on your way to ascension. You will become a great old one like the moon presence you just killed. I don't know what you'd look like. They don't go over that. But basically the idea that is this cyclical death that people are trying to get away from and there really is no escaping and the fact that the fear of the unknown like many people quoted hp lovecraft said you know it's the fear of the unknown which is the worst fear and i think this is pretty amazing and this also turns into death because i think death is the one part of life that we have little to no understanding of you know we don't understand what happens to people after they die and uh it's hidden from us and it is the one probably the last great um, you know, unknown. So I think Bloodborne is an amazing job of tying every little thing to the game together. You'll get an item description on something you find. And when you go to Bergenworth, William's whole thing is he wants to see more and he wants the world open up to him. So as you look through his labs and his office, there is nothing but eyeballs and jars all over because he believes that eyeballs are the way to see into the future. Uh, you talk to people that are slightly off in the very beginning of the game. I'm probably going to butcher your name, but you open up, you wake up at IOSF's clinic. 
you go and talk to her and she seems uh, she's behind a door. So you knock on a door and she speaks to you. She seems very off. Well, what you come to find out is she is also doing experiments with the blood and she tells you that she can heal you and other people. But if you bring people to the lab, you will meet NPCs in the world and they're like, hey, it's crazy out here. I don't like this hunt. And if you go, hey, why don't you go to the clinic? It's safe because this woman told me it's safe and I believe it's safe. She will be experimenting on the bodies. If there's a back way into the clinic, if you go there, based on how many people you've told to go back there, they will become these weird slug-like entities with well, like weird gelatinous heads that try to attack you and suck your insight away, which is denoted in the game by an eyeball. And the bigger your insight, the more the world you see, you see a lot of eyeballs. Creatures look different. It's basically like you're seeing the world for what it is after these ancient old ones have destroyed Yarnum or changed it in a way that is, you know, unrecognizable. So I think Bloodborne is a masterpiece, and I know... That's probably been said a lot, um, and it is very difficult. So a lot of people just play the game and say, this is really hard, I can't get past it, and I totally understand that because as someone who's played Bloodborne a lot for 96 hours or 93 hours, whatever it was, uh, it's hard. A lot of people are like, hey, you can beat it in 30 hours. I'm like, no, no, son, it's 100 hours and I haven't beat it yet, uh, but I've gotten pretty far. So what I think is amazing is it ties this idea of death, of like, hey, somebody in my village is sick, I want to help them great but you're going to be stuck in this this like disgusting loop and although you have decisions like it doesn't mean anything in the end and the fact that the old ones don't care what is happening to Yarnum, you are literally just their plaything. and so i guess there could be some weird existential question you could talk about how these old ones contemplate their own mortality if they don't care about other people's mortality but i guess that's probably for another podcast but i'll say this much i do like these themes that from software keeps using of tying the death of you and people around you into the lore like these things feed into each other as opposed to other games where death and your progress are not really that uh integrately tied and i think that is why in a, in a way bloodborne is a testament to games that it's it's i mean it's a masterpiece really i think the only thing that suffers is that it is a little bit older it came out in 2015 um, from software notoriously, I mean, this is just a logistic thing. They've had problems with their engine before running smoothly, and I think that's the one complaint you hear of the community is like sometimes the frame rate kind of goes down and doesn't run as well as you want it to, and that kind of upsets some people. So, um, yeah. So basically, that's my uh, in a nutshell thing of Bloodborne. But again, I think it is very important and really amazing how uh, from software is able to tie these things together. You know, that they're like, no, death has to matter, and here's why. And it isn't just a superficial um, thing. So the next game I'm going to talk about is Dark Souls 3. Wow. Okay. Dark Souls 3. Huh. It came out on um, April 20th. Probably would have helped if I wrote a date down. One second. It is... Uh, <laughs> I can't believe we didn't write that down. Uh, it came out in Japan on March 24th, 2016, worldwide on April 12th, 2016, even on uh, Windows. So it was released on PlayStation 4, Xbox. It's a multi-platform game. Um, and so this is really unique where um, I, I watched a few lore videos on Bloodborne, or uh, I'm sorry, on Dark Souls, Bloodborne 3, on Dark Souls 3, and the consensus seems to be that uh, Lothric, the lord of this land that you're at, decided not to complete the cycle of life that needed to happen in Dark Souls 1. So 
you know, um, fire turns to embers, turns to ash. You need to restart the embers to have a fire burning, so the age of light and darkness. Uh, well, in the third game, uh, the prince, uh, Lorthic, I hope I'm saying his name right, decided not to do that. He believed that was a curse and wanted to walk away. Now, apparently, the darkness in this game is not, um, it's not bad. It's just basically that, uh, you know, the plague of the undead will just continue. So you can see that's a little bit like Bloodborne, where there's kind of this thing happening unless someone intervenes. Uh, it's kind of also a theme of whatever. Um, I've spent the least amount of time with Dark Souls 3. I probably played it for about three or four hours. Um, this is definitely more refined. It came after Bloodborne. A lot of the systems have been refined, but they still have the From Software. Um, I'm not going to say jank. It is, uh, I don't know, the nuance, I guess, of the design. So what's interesting to me is that you... It seems like you're actively working against Orthic, from what I can under, uh, understand, to reignite the Age of Fire. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. There's, I guess, tons of theories online. But I think it's interesting that, you know, there has to be light. There has to be darkness. Uh, people are born. People die. But with uh, Dark Souls 3, you are actively saying, no, this this cycle has to continue. Maybe it's the fact that Lurthic like broke the cycle of the you know what was naturally what was supposed to happen light dark light dark uh, daytime nighttime uh, in a way and he broke that and said I'm not I'm not doing it it's a curse uh, I want everything to fade away this is you know and you're trying to keep it alive um, and I think that is a really interesting take on um, you know taking the idea of death. And someone's saying, no, I'm just going to sustain in this state. So they really are breaking the cycle in a way and saying, this is unacceptable. Um, again, I'm not going to spend as much time probably in Dark Souls 3 because I know the least amount uh, about Dark Souls 3. But it does seem to follow in the tradition of death, life, keeping that tied into the game. It follows the same thing about, uh, you know... Um, the cycle, things like that, that can't be broken. It's fascinating. So I guess I know that was a shorter section, but um, I guess after this, I'm going to talk about Sekiro, which won several awards. So let's do that. All right, let's talk about Sekiro, which came out on uh, March 22nd, 2019 on everything, Windows, PS4, Xbox One. And then on 28th of October, it came out on Stadia. Um, yeah, so... Sekiro is really interesting. It did uh, kind of show, or at least um, introduce some new mechanics, which I think is pretty good. One is the posture system, which I really love. Uh, so the player, uh, Sekiro, the wolf, and um, enemies have a posture. It starts out at zero. It's basically a line that grows in either side uh, and... and uh, starts out as like orange and then turns red and what happens is the more you get hit your posture gauge increases 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 if it gets maxed out your posture is broken and people can do like a killing blow or like an incredibly kind of intense uh, stab to you what i think is very interesting about this is it works for you and the enemies and what that does is really make you look at the posture gauge how you're hitting someone because uh, if you hit L1, you will, or L2, I forget, 
Um, I streamed a little bit, but now I just instantly forgot. You will bring your uh, katana up to parry or block, and they will too. And depending on how you do that, if you time it correctly, your posture could go up or down. If you have a perfect parry, your posture goes down. The less you get hit, your posture goes down. Um, if you stand still, your posture will go down faster. This um, A lot of people have described Sekiro as almost like a rhythm game that you have to uh, time correctly with everybody else around you and things like that. And I think uh, that's pretty apt because I played Sekiro for, um, I think I checked my clock, I think it was 70 somewhat hours. Anyway, um, that is pretty um, insane amount of time to play Sekiro. Again, most people go, oh yeah, you could beat it in 30 hours. Not me. Not me, my friend. Um, but I did get one of the endings of the game. I got the um, return home ending, I think is what it's called. It's basically the best ending. So again, uh, from software, kind of ties death and lore together. So uh, in, the, in this place, in kind of a feudal version of Japan, uh, there's uh, the dragon's heir, a line of heirs and things like that, that what they do is they are immortal. And with the blood of the heir, um, you, I mean, you're effectively immortal, and you are the person who watches over the prince, uh, Kuro, I think his name is. You watch him over and make sure that he is safe, basically, to be immortal. Uh, you'll obviously die. Um, but what happens in this, uh, it's in the very beginning, there's been kind of a coup, I guess, in a way, um, and someone wants to basically kidnap the prince and use his blood to basically create a immortal army. Uh, but Kuro doesn't want to do that. He's a kid. I think of the game he's probably like 10, 12, somewhere in there. He's young. And he says, I don't want to do that. So um, this general, uh, there's several characters in the game, uh, basically uh, puts him uh, under lock and key in a guard. Since you're his protector, you uh, come in, you save him. And through the course of the game, again, like many From Software games, it unravels. Excuse me. It is unraveled that there's several ways to go about doing this. You can either side with the prince and help him. You basically get a good ending. Or um, you allow him to die and you find out that there is someone else, another dragon's heir or something like that, that's this monastery was actually experimenting on children to create another dragon's heir or at least speed the process along from what i can understand uh you go to this place it's very somber there's graves all over these pinwheels that they used in and out of grave of a kid uh, it's pretty sad especially considering what i've been through um but what i think is interesting about Sekiro is there's so much choice there's four endings in Sekiro, which I think ties for the most amount of endings in a Swarm Software game. And there's so many subtle things you can do. One, you can allow the prince, the 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 um, child to die. Now, you said, but Joe, I thought you said he was immortal. You find something in a game called the Mortal Blade, which is a mythical blade that allows you to kill someone that is immortal. So with the, the Mortal Blade, uh, the prince says, you know, just let me die. And you actually find someone who was like the original dragon is there, somebody that's part of this bloodline that the monastery has been experimenting with. And you basically go with her to take her home. Uh, it's kind of this walk into the sunset ending, which is really weird. Um, but I, I, th I think it's really fascinating. The other ending is to put, obviously portray the boy, uh, kill him, kill Kiro, and let whoever and whatever wants to use his blood to use his blood now there's these other subtle differences in the endings too there's these two other ones that are very different where one <coughs> you basically betray people at different times 
And it basically allows, um, you know, yourself, it's very subtle and um, it's, it's, it's kind of abstract, but it allows um, kind of, um, it allows Kiro to live without being the dragon's heir, like you heal him. And there's one other ending that's is like really abstract. But what what I find fascinating is it's more granular than good or bad. You you can help the prince without really helping him in one of the endings, uh, allowing him to live stuff like that, or you can kill everybody and betray him. But like there's these little differences. It kind of reminds me of Bioshock Two. Now I know you're gonna be like, that's a weird pull, Joe. The thing with Bioshock 2 was I think it got maligned a lot. But depending on how many of the little sisters you saved, you there was like four or five different endings. And I watched them and I thought it was really amazing uh, how subtle it was. And there was something one of the characters said in the end to my character said, you know, you taught me what I should do and who I should be through your actions. And since there's like four or five different ending cutscenes, you really did have this feeling that you affected the end of the game. And I was like really blown away. And I really thought that was Sekiro. Even though I haven't got every ending, obviously I had to research the game to get the ending I want because just like other From Software games, there's hidden items, hidden paths, different ways to complete things. There's, <coughs> excuse me, different prayer beads to get, things you have to do. It's very difficult. But what I really loved about it was that basically uh, you have the choice to kind of make, and I think all the endings are pretty solid. You know, I don't know if From Software has ever made a quote-unquote good ending but they definitely made something that made you think about it and see how it was implemented in the game so that i think was pretty neat so um again they take like death and make this incredibly subtle thing of like should we have the cycle continue or end you know now there's personal choice should i betray the prince should i hold back stuff like that i think all this is really fascinating and uh next week i'm actually going to sit down and read a little bit about the lore of Elden Ring, which is from Software's newest game. And I'm going to sit down with probably about four to five people. It's amazing how many people in my friends group are actually playing this game. And we're going to have a review discussion. A little bit about the lore, but I really want to talk to my friends, who some of them are on New Game Plus and spent 100 hours playing the games. Some of them have never played the games before, like my wife and uh, my sister-in-law. Uh, they don't really played from Software games. And I even had... Uh, my sister-in-law's husband, uh, and we have a group chat going where he said, I, I get what you're talking about. The 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 high of killing a From Software boss is pretty amazing. And so I think we're, we're all going to talk about that um, next week, and I'm really looking forward to it. I wanted to give people adequate time to play the game. It is a huge open-world game. Again, you can spend 100 hours playing it if you want, like somebody in our group did. So that's why that's coming out later. So I hope this has been somewhat informative. Maybe you like From Software games now. Don't just get caught up on the fact that it is difficult. In fact, one thing I think that From Software games have taught me is, yes, like I said in last week's episode, I've looked at guides. I've looked at things to make the games easier or, oh, I need to go on this path to get this item and that'll make this easier. But at the end of the day... I've, I've beaten those bosses and gotten those endings, you know, like I'm maybe three bosses in Bloodborne and mini bosses away from beating the game. But up until that progress, although I looked at a guide and was shown where to go and what secret entrance or secret item to get or whatever, I physically beat those bosses to progress the story. So like it is possible to do. And if you just push past that, and, and for me, it was like when I played the original Demon Souls, and I'll bring it back to last week's part, was the idea that I beat, like, one of the hardest bosses in that game, in my opinion, which was King Alant. I think the other bosses were very technically designed. You know, you knew where their hits kind of land. You had a good idea, even though I think there's a lot of From Software reach that's happening, as I'll call it, where you're like, that can't reach that far. Um, 
Oh, it's a four staff. Um, but I think King a lot was like a little bit more crazy. There was a little bit of anime weirdness going on. Anyway, I still think of that of like, I still did it. I beat Demon Souls again, 72 hours in. Even though I read a guide again to find items and things, I was able to do it, and I think that's a major accomplishment. Um, and I feel that way every time I play a from software game, even an Elden Ring. Oh man, this boss beat me, darn it! And you go back and you beat him, and then you think, okay, this isn't as bad. When you meet a new boss, you think this is going to be rough, but it's still not going to be as bad as the last person or whatever. And I think that's really good. So I think that's going to be it this week, guys. I just want to remind you that this podcast will hit my website, www.gamewithgrief.com, Monday morning at 7 a.m. Please go there and let me know what you think of the show. Um, you can also write to me at gwgpodfellows at gmail.com. Uh, go there, leave a comment. Maybe there's a game you want me to review or something like that. Uh, write in. Or you can subscribe to the podcast on either Apple iTunes, the Google Play Store, or Spotify. Go there. Give me all the likes, the subscribes, the stuff like that. Please do that. Um, and um, and you can find me on Twitter at JustLittleJoe. So go to those places and uh, let me know. Uh, what you think of the show. And that's it for this week, guys. And I will talk to you next week when we talk about Elden Ring. Bye. <laughs>